Here's good luck to the pine pod, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the pine pod, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the pine pod, half a pine chill, half a joke, quarter joke, nippin' and the rumbo. Here's good luck, good luck, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, here's good luck to the half gallon, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the half gallon, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the half gallon pint pot, half a pint jill, half a joe, quarter joe, nippin' and the rumbo. Here's good luck, good luck, good luck to the barley Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at the works of great American writers using the Library of America as my source material. And currently, we are exploring the Leatherstocking Tales by James Fenimore Cooper. And specifically, I am now looking at the final of the Leatherstocking Tales, The Prairie. The Prairie was actually the third of the Leatherstocking Tales written, published in 1827, but it covers the final moments of of the character, Leatherstocking, Natty Bumpo, Hawkeye, Pathfinder, Deerslayer, uh, whatever name you want to give to him. The Prairie is the first of the Leatherstocking Tales not to be set in either colonial or early national New York. It, As I said, it covers the final days of Leatherstocking as he has moved on from New York to the prairies on the other side of the Mississippi River. It takes on new lands acquired by the... It, or it takes place in new lands acquired by the United States in the Louisiana Purchase and thus constitutes in many ways a new frontier for our character and for our nation. Natty Bumpo, fleeing the advancing pioneer society represented and described very well in The Pioneers, is living out his final days as a, as a trapper, being too old to hunt. And he's literally fleeing development. He says at one point in the novel that he couldn't really live with the sound of the trees being cut down anymore, so he had to go to, on to a new place. But as soon as he gets there, or not long after getting arriving there, he runs into a new generation of pioneers. But he meets some people who speak to his past as well, and this, there's a bit of a connection to his previous life. Uh, and he must apply his vast skills in new conflicts between the whites and Indians and malevolent whites with uh, odd and violent agendas. But he's doing it in a new setting. So one reason you may want to read The Pioneers is because it takes some of the themes of the other leather stocking tales, but wraps it up and puts it in a new setting. It's kind of fresh because um, I can tell you as someone who's just read through all five of the leather stocking tales and, and talked about them for some length of time, they can get to be a bit of a chore. I, I don't know if I'd recommend reading them the way I have to any of you, but it's, it's what I did and it it does become a bit of, of, of a haul. Cooper is not the easiest writer to get through. But anyways, in the last two episodes, I talked about the first half of the prairie. Uh, in the story, we have a, the, the caravan of the Bush family going deep into the West. It's in 1805. They're going past the Mississippi River. This is two years after the Louisiana Purchase. Along the way, they run into Natty Bumpo, who's only known in the story as the Trapper. In fact, if you were just to pick up this novel, you wouldn't really have any idea of his background except what he tells you there's hints so people who read the last of the mohicans or the pioneers know who this character is but it's only through clues that he's identified he's never really called by name and he meets this large caravan of people that is all organized around the bush family the head of the family is ishmael bush he's got his wife esther bush their brother-in-law it's actually esther's brother i guess ibrahim white he's sort of the villain of the tale they're with Ellen Wade, a relative, 
there's a man they've hired to go along with him as a doctor named Obadet Bat, who calls himself Batius. He takes a Latin name. He's really interested in the frontier as a scientist, and he wants to collect material. He's, he's very much into taxonomy. He doesn't do that much doctoring in the book. He does much more talking about advanced science. And he, he comes up as a really interesting foil to Natty Bumpo, kind of the contrast between practical knowledge and, and science. So anyways, he meets him, he helps him set up a camp. He talks to Ellen Wade, who is the, you know, the, I think she's, he's, she's the niece of, of the Bush family and meets Ellen's lover, Helen Hoover, a bee hunter. And he's kind of interesting character because he's somewhat between the frontier and civilization in that he's not a beer raised. He's, he's not raising bees, but he's basically just scavenging honey from uh, wild bees. They're quickly taken captive by the Sioux, and the Sioux go on to steal the Bush's horses and, and other animals, release their animals. Natty helps the caravans escape by releasing the Sioux's own horses, and there's kind of a chaotic scene. We learn, though, that the Bush caravan is holding a strange, young, black-haired woman, and that this woman is causing conflict in the Bush family. One night, while Natty... Paul and Obadid Bat are eating buffalo together, they run into a strange man. This man is Middleton, a descendant of Duncan Hayward from the novel The Last of the Mohicans. He tells his story of how he married the daughter of a Spanish landlord in Louisiana, but on his wedding night had her stolen away by Abraham and Ishmael Bush. He followed them to this point, and now he wants to get his wife back. The group of men approached the Bush camp and managed to leave with both Ellen Wade and Inez, the young Spanish uh, wife. While this is going on, the Bush family is burying Asa, one of the sons who was shot to death under mysterious circumstances. While they originally assumed it was the Sioux who did this, the bullet was labeled with the mark of the trapper Natty. The trapper and the companions flee, but they're unsure where to go. The main plan is to meet up with Middleton's troops, who are stationed not, well, a bit far away, but, you know, within distance that they can travel to, but they would have to go through Sioux territory to get there. And they're also fleeing the Bush family who's trying to get these women back. They also, though, run into a Pawnee chief named Hardheart, who's later, you know, he's later revealed to be a chief, but at the time he just seems to be a Pawnee. He welcomes them to Pawnee lands, but I, the point is either path is about equal distance and both will take them through Sioux territory and be dangerous. So at the halfway point in the story, a lot of what's go we're basically back to something we're very familiar with in Cooper's Tales, which are kind of a chase or an escort mission and dangerous Indians in the countryside. And the Natty is, has to use his skills to get past them, to avoid them, to fight them if necessary, but mostly to kind of get to a destination uh, while being chased by some other group. And this you saw in, especially in like Last of the Mohicans and the Pathfinder. And it just is coming up again. So it's, in this way, it, it feels a lot more like those tales than it does like the pioneers. So um, let's get on the next part of the story. We begin with a discussion of God and nature and book learning. These kind of discussions, if, if science is involved in this novel, it's always going to be a conversation between Obed and Natty to some degree. And th these are, you know, whether it's the discussion of God or the nature of knowledge or religion, it's always going to bring conflict between these two characters. So for instance, Natty at one point says, listen, 
Now you hear the buffalo and bisons as you knowing doctor sees fit to call them, though buffalo is the name among all the hunters of this region. Now I conclude that a hunter is a better judge of a beast of, and of its name than any man who's turned over the leaves of a book instead of traveling over the face of the earth in order to find out nature of its inhabitants. Of the natures I will grant you, cried the naturalist, who rarely missed an opportunity to agitate any point which touched his favorite subject. This is provided always that deference is had to the proper use of definitions, and they are contemplated with scientists' eyes. Eyes of the mole! As if man's eyes were not as good for the names as the eyes of any other creature who named the works of his hand. Can you tell me that with your books and college wisdom? Was not the first man in the garden, and is it not plain consequence that his children inherit these gifts? And they go on with this, and there's... A point where Natty essentially embraces a literal reading of the Bible, which is rather fascinating for someone who apparently never read the Bible. He heard these Bible stories. He was raised by Moravarians, but he doesn't read. And, you know, there's no sense that he actually read the Bible. He talked a lot in the other other stocking tales about how nature itself is his temple and his church. Um, So, but, but this is the nature of their disagreement. And I think what really you have here is a tension between kind of a, a traditional, almost Puritan, or in this case, more variant way of life and looking at the world with this advancing of modern science. Now, their discussion is broken up by a stampede of bison. And there's, of course, been much written about the decline of the bison in the Great Plains. In 1805, obviously, there's still millions and millions of these animals in great herds across the Great Plains. And through hunting by some degree by the Indians, but more so by the white settlers, these, got, these were driven almost to extinction. The historian William Cronin, who wrote this great book on Chicago called Nature's Metropolis, talks a little bit about this, um, you know, the, de- the devastation inflicted on the bison tribes by the settlers. Now, as William Cronin talks about in this book, it wasn't until after the Civil War that the bison herds were really fully devastated. So obviously it's connected to the expansion of white American civilization. But he also emphasizes just how vast these herds of bison seemed in the early early days. So to quote Cronin here, so numerous were the enormous shaggy beasts that travelers found themselves groping for verbal images to describe them adequately. They were like the fish of the sea, an army in battle, a biblical plague of locusts, a robe that clothed the prairies in all directions to the horizon. Perhaps the most common observation made by many before and after Catlin was that the animals literally changed the color of the landscape, blackening the whole surface of the country. They seemed, as the Reverend Robert Ruddle said in The Borrowed Worlds of Milton, in numbers, numberless. When William J. Hay sought to record the vast scale of the stampeding herd in the paintings he made while visiting the plains in 1860, Eastern critics attacked him for his exaggeration and his want of accuracy. Yet those who had seen the herds themselves could testify that Hayes had got his image exactly right. This is all 40 years after Cooper wrote these words, but you almost get the sense that Cooper is predicting that the arrival of settler society will mean the, the eradication of these people. And he talks about ecology a lot in The Pioneers, when he, he sees these pioneers wastefully harvesting fish from the lake or, or harvesting birds from the sky. Anyways, there's a resolution to this stampede of bison. Natty has to kind of take charge. He charges down the middle of the herd, splitting it up. Gamut helps a little bit too. Or not Gamut, sorry, Dr. Bat. Um, 
helps too with his donkey. Now, I mentioned Gamut because, you know, I just had it in the next line of my notes because at this point, Natty does talk about David Gamut to Dr. Bat. And we're again reminded that how closely related these characters are. Both are kind of fish out of water in these tales. David Gamut in The Last of the Mohicans is a songwriter living out in this frontier in wartime. And he has to kind of become a man and face his death and become part of the frontier by the end of the story. Bat has much the same trajectory of his character in this in this story. He, now he's a little less flexible. He's he's much more holding to his science than I think. Gamut maybe was a little bit more liquid in his ability to change his nature. Bat not so much. But both are in Cooper's mind really tied together as characters. Now the reason the bison were fleeing and stampeding, as we might suspect, was the arrival of an Indian hunting party. Natty knows this, so he approaches the Indian hunting party. He approaches them alone in hopes of keeping the rest of the group safe. So here's the scheme, basically, that they he will negotiate with the Sioux who sort of know him. You know, he's he knows their language while the rest of the group can get away. The problem is they're also being chased by the Bush caravan who's going to come and try to try take, get these women back. Natty talks at length with the Sioux chief, uh, Mahuti, Mahutri, Ma, Mahuteri. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. M-A-H-T-O-R-E-E. They don't believe his claims to be alone. And they talk about different issues. But the most important one they introduce is really the question of empire. And it's something that comes up a lot in the conversations with the Lakota. It's just the inevitability of the emergence of American empire. This is something he says, uh, Natty says, I think. My nation is more numerous than the buffalo on the prairie or the pigeons in the air. Their quarrels are frequent, yet their warriors are few. None go out the warpath, but they're they who are gifted with the qualities of a brave and therefore see such battles. Um, he's using their language, the Indian language, to talk to them, but essentially he's saying that even though they have few soldiers, they're, they're, they're coming and the white people are arriving and empires coming to this land. It's not something Natty himself has to worry too much about because he's sort of escaped it and he's old. But younger generations, especially the young of the Lakota, are going to face the arrival of whites, certainly in their, in their life. I think Cooper is quite forward thinking in how devastating civilization is going to be to these hu this huge frontier. Anyways, Natty's plans to kind of distract them while the rest get away are disrupted by the arrival of Middleton. And why does he come? Well, he's coming because the Bush family has spotted them and is arriving. So basically, they gamble. They'll have better luck with the Sioux. Realizing that the Bush camp is defenseless, so the Sioux decide to launch an attack on the Bush family. This starts a conflict with the Bush family. Now, I, we've seen this before, actually. Not quite in this way, but we've seen it with like the Huron in The Last of the Mohicans, who were allied with the French, but after the French betrayed them, they ally with the Delaware and are willing to, you know, the, the, the liquidity of these alliances and how flexible they are. That's something that's revisited here, but it's on a much smaller scale because you just have the, it's not huge nations, it's not empires so much, although that's kind of in the backdrop coming. But it's really just these small groups of people. But the Lakota by, you know, be, you know taking the advantage of the Bush family's Weakness attacking them and later as we'll see a line with them shows this flexibility of their alliance structure So this starts a conflict with the Bush family and in all of this the trapper and his friends are able to escape on horses 
There's an interesting conversation at this point with Dr. Bat. Always the most interesting conversations in this novel are between Bat and Natty, it seems to me. Natty has presented the naturalist as a magical healer to the Indians, and this has helped him stay alive. And again, there's a contrast with Gamut because Gamut used his singing to stay alive. By singing, David Gamut and Last of the Mohicans was able to present himself as a fool or even insane to the Huron, and they didn't take him seriously. In this case, it's the magic of healing, of magic of medicine that's going to keep Dr. Bat alive or valuable, at least. Natty even goes so far as to suggest that he can make a living with the Indians as a healer. He may even find a bride. At this, Matt is incredibly offended, and we get a, a kind of a declaration where he says, how, how can you suggest this? How could I ever marry someone who's not even of my species, he says. He goes that far, and here we see kind of the delusions of the taxonomist who's willing to subdivide even humanity into different species. He says, marry me to a woman who is not adorned with the comeliness of the species, responded the doctor. Of what crime have I been guilty that so grievous a punishment should await the offense? To marry a man against the movements of his will is to do violence against to human nature. Now, I find this kind of interesting in the context of the other novels we read. Well, in Last of the Mohicans, it's fully possible that Cora is going to fall in love with and marry Uncas. They, they both die before the novel ends, so that never comes to pass. But they were in, in love. At least Uncas was in love with Cora. And in The Deerslayer, now I know that's looking forward to a novel he would write later, but in The Deerslayer, the assumption that Deerslayer marries an Indian woman, because he kills an Indian warrior, a Huron warrior, and while he's being captured, it's, you know, they don't want to kill him because he's so valuable and skillful. They say, well, you can marry her and become the wife, fill that place. And he, Deerslayer, he's not horrified by it. He wouldn't say anything like this. But he does say, like, I can only can marry a white woman. And he says, you kind of got like has to keep the like. And so I don't know, like Cooper presents the doctor here as kind of odious in his nasty, how nasty he is about the idea of marrying an Indian woman. But I do know that Deerslayer says things that aren't that far in sentiment, even if it's not told in such harsh language. But anyways, we get this idea that medicine is greatly valued among the Sioux. Now later, again, Doctor and Natty are talking and they talk about religion. It's clear that Natty is thinking about death and the afterlife again. In fact, he often has thought about that. At many points in these stories, he's assumed he's going to die or he's thought about death. But now it takes on a new context. It's not even the even if he doesn't die violently, he knows his death is coming soon. And it's something that's very much on his on his mind. Again, I just think these philosophical conversations between these two characters are great. Um, Cooper spent a lot of time developing these two. Well, of course, Natty, we, we know very well, but bad. Other characters, Middleton, Hoover, El, even Ellen and Inez, they're there, but they're really background characters. And for whatever reason, he really wants to center on this. So it's kind of the old, almost mystic at this point, debating them, the modern scientist. And, well, here we got a nice conversation. This is on page 1149 of the Library of America version of, of the prairie. Quote, your mortals are exact enough for me, for I think I see in them the very pride of folly. 
I am but little gifted in the fables of what you call the old world, seeing that my time has been mainly passed looking nature steadily in the face, and in reasoning on what I have rather than, than on what I have heard in traditions. But I have never shut my ears to the word of the good book, and many is the long winter evening that I passed in the wigwams of the Delaware, listening to the good Morvarians as they dealt forth the history and doctrine of the elder times to the people of the Lenape. It was pleasant to hearken such wisdom after a weary hunt, Right pleasant did I feel it, and often had I talked the matter over with the great serpent of the Delaware in the more peaceful hours of our old lane, whether it was might be on the trail of a war party of Mingos or on the watch for a York deer. I remember to have heard it then and there said that the blessed land was once fertile as the bottom of the Mississippi and groaning with its stores of grains and fruits, but that the judgment that has fallen upon it and that is all more remarkable for its barrenness than any quality to boast of. End quote. Um, this the kind of the decline from fertility to to barrenness is of course a metaphor of his own decline in his skills. I think him becoming going from a hunter to a trapper is a is a major transition in his own life. It happens off screen. We meet him as a trapper in this novel when he was a hunter in their previous book, um, but it's it's partially his own aging. Things pick up in chapter twenty three. When the Sioux try to root out the companions, they set up a prairie fire to try to root them out. And once again, Nanny's knowledge of nature, very practical, very to the point, saves the day. Dr. Pat despairs, other characters despair, but Natty knows what he's doing and he knows how to deal with a brush fire that's spreading. He uses a backfire. Basically, you set up a fire around you to kill you know it basically kills the plant life around you so there's nothing to catch on fire and that's going to let the fire pass over you i'm sure firefighters know much more about this than than i do but my understanding is called a backfire and this is what saves the party from the advancing flames middleton is also surprised though at how this works and this shows that most of his companions are pretty ignorant of nature natty's really the only one who sort of knows what he's doing here um, and it's it's, it's a source of some comedy here but most of the characters are pretty useless. Hoover, a little bit, knows some things, but even he's not really presented as the match of, of, of Natty. And you really feel that you miss Chingachgook because Chingachgook, although different than Natty, at least could, at least was his equal in a lot of ways. He doesn't really have that character anymore. There was even white characters who matched the skill of Natty in various times. Um, Oliver Edwards and the Pioneers. Even Hurry Harry in the Deerslayer or Duncan. These are white characters who at least could stand up and, and match him. He doesn't quite have that same foil in that sense in, in this novel. But anyways, after the fire is avoided, they're able to find the remains of a horse and a bison. Dr. Bat again gets nerdy with his taxonomy, creating a joke that, uh, you know, because he talks something about species and genus talking about taxonomy and others don't understand and they think that he's saying species of genius and there's a little bit of we get a little bit of a laugh as they try to explain what species and genius means and it's just again we got bat talking over everyone's head and being entirely useless now in a way i i want to believe his knowledge could be useful in a lot of these situations but he doesn't apply it in a very useful way he applies it in ways that just kind of show off his knowledge rather than really being you know useful so they push the body of a burned out bison out of the way and an Indian emerges from underneath the bison. The Indian was basically hiding under 
the bison to try to stay alive during the fire. This Indian is none other than Hardheart, the Pawnee, who they met earlier. He had saved himself by using the body of a bison as a shield. Yet he has bad news. The fire was not just the Sioux going after the companions. They are now allied with the Bush family. So there's a long chase as the group tries to evade being located by the Sioux. Hardheart has called for Pawnee warriors to rescue them, but he won't, they won't come for a while. And before long, they're captured. So there's a long chase that goes on for 10, 15 pages, but eventually they are captured by the Sioux. So we are given a bit of the context on the alliance between the Bush and the Sioux. It seems the Bush want out of this alliance the women, and they want like some of their property and the animals that the Sioux stole back. Now, what's in it for the Sioux? Not much, it seems, what we know of their initial alliance. It doesn't seem the Sioux are getting much. And it turns out that the Sioux are just deceiving the Bush family and just using them. Because the Sioux immediately refused to surrender the captives, surrender the women. And we're going to find out later on that the chief has eyes for the women, both Inez and Ellen. He wants to marry both of them, make them kind of sister wives. So Bush is forced to break away from the Sioux Alliance and he sets up his camp farther away. But the, again, we get this kind of flexibility of alliances we've seen in, in some of these other novels, particularly the last of the Mohicans. Hardhart himself is ready to face torture for his life of crimes against the Sioux. He's a, he had killed a bunch of them, I think like 20 Sioux in various battles, and therefore he's going to have to face death. And the, the Sioux are very eager to torture him and then finally kill him. And we've seen these torture scenes in in the Deer Slayer. I don't know if it's the same. It's probably not the same for the Sioux. We never get that far to the point where we actually see the torture scene in this novel. So we don't know how different it would have been. I'm sure there are people there who know how this may have worked out. Um, but it's a very similar device of this thread of torture um, hanging over our characters. All, and as in the other Cooper novels, any violence is prolonged. And he drags it out with discussions of violence and torture and long speeches and eloquent conversations on justice and a lot of threats and all the stuff we've used to from these other, the other stories we've been reading. So if you like these long um, speeches and bravado, they're, they're here for you. Natty promises Natty is kind of fatalistic at this point he doesn't really think he can save Hardheart so he just says he'll help him pass on to the happy hunting grounds by sacrificing his horse over his grave and he, and he explains how he's going to do it he's going to go back to the Pawnee get a horse I think it's a colt that hasn't been written has to be sacrificed over his grave or something and now he talks about happy hunting grounds here and I, I mentioned this before in the Deer Slay and other books that when talking about the Iroquois, he would use this idea of happy hunting ground with them. And my understanding was that that was more of a Plains Indian belief. And I looked it up in Wikipedia, and it seemed Wikipedia agreed with me. Now, here it makes sense. Certainly, the Sioux and the Iroquois aren't going to have the same afterlife, or at least the same beliefs in the afterlife. Um, so I think Cooper may, is exposing a little bit of ignorance here about um, the afterlife beliefs of various Indians groups. But anyways, we get Natty's promise that he will help them get to the happy hunting grounds uh, through the sacrifice. Natty also talks to the others about how to prepare for their deaths because he's basically fatalistic about their hopes as well. 
What really saves the day is that Batori decides to take the white women as wives, which causes his own wife, a, a woman named Skipping Fawn, to become offended. And she begins to resist and she gets all dramatic and kind of tearing at her clothes and crying and, and being, you know, doing what she can do to get Mahotri to change his mind. Middleton also makes a plea to the chief, which is quite eloquent, where he goes on about how these women really his own suffering, their own life story. And he tries to stand up for the women saying they can't be a Sioux woman. We had very similar scenes in The Last of the Mohicans where you have these long pleas and there's some value given to how well you can talk. It, it's not about facts so much, but it's about how well you can persuade and how eloquent you are in the moment. Skipping Fawn, Mahutri's wife, is the most dramatic in these scenes where she strips off all her ornamentation, all her gifts given to her by her husband. She refuses to move in a protest to the taking of the new wives. And I think that will be all I want to cover today in terms of the plot of the story. I'll, I'll finish up the prairie, the final chapters of the prairie, next time in my conclusion to the Leatherstocking Tales. But I thought it'd be worthwhile just to think a little bit, bit about, I'm not going to give any concrete conclusions here, but it's something that's been on my mind as I've come to the end of this series of novels. And that is about how Cooper presents women. Because I don't think he's incapable of presenting strong women who are able to face danger. Well, I, he certainly does that. He does it certainly in the Pathfinder with Mabel. Uh, I, I think the same with the Hutter children in the Deerslayer. He's, he does it very well. Those are both novels he wrote later. In these novels, the first three Leatherstocking Tales, The Prairie, The Last of the Mohicans, and The Prairie, The Pioneers, The Last of the Mohicans, and The Prairie, the women are much more passive than they are in the later novels. I, I just want to point out, I see a transition in that from the 1820s when he wrote these novels to the 1840s, he, he changed something in his head about how he's presenting women. And I don't know why he did that. I don't know what inspired it. Was it something personal? Was it criticisms he was getting? Or, you know, he just he felt that the setting fitted that more. In The Pioneers, you have Elizabeth. And her job there is to be the husband, eventually, of Oliver Edwards, to help resolve the plot and to join these two families in a marriage, these two kind of landowning families into a marriage. She's also there to be saved at times, and and otherwise she doesn't really have that much of an independent role. She's she's sometimes sent off on, on duty. She's she's got, I guess, a moral role in that she wants to stand up for Natty from time from time to time. In The Last of the Mohicans, the female characters Cora and Alice, Cora's more well defined as a character than Alice is, certainly. And she she dies and she's sacrificed, but she's also there kind of as a love interest. It's hard for me, even though I just read these books, to think of what she actually did as a character, except being a damsel in distress. In The Prairie, you have this great scene where Ellen stands up to these four men, armed men, to defend the camp. But after that, she kind of just disappears from the story. Inez, Middleton's wife, is also a character that is really just the damsel in distress. And she's just the, the MacGuffin there for, to drive Middleton into this plot and to push Natty to choose sides and, and all that. And then finally, you know, the Indians want to take her as a wife and that, that makes the Indians much more dangerous. 
that's in these first these first three of the written leather stocking tales in the pathfinder and the deerslayer you get much stronger women you got hissed who i think is one of the more interesting characters in all of these stories you have the hutter children the hutter girls and then you have mabel and i don't know why he's changed his mind if anyone has an answer to that question or maybe i'm overstating how much of a transition there is in cooper's writing in the sense of how he presents women but I, I don't think he presents them always as, as passive. I think he is capable of presenting women who are able to stand up for themselves. But so often, but even in those later tales, it's always about who, who are you going to marry, right? They're, they're there as marriage companions for various characters. And I think that's, that's, some, that's some burden he's bearing. It's, I guess the burden of domesticity is kind of hovering over these tales and how they're presenting, presenting women. So I know this is going to be a really unsatisfactory mumbling about Cooper's vision and presentation of women, but I, I just wanted to express that I've been thinking a little bit about this and I don't really have a conclusion or an, an explanation. I know I've been saying a lot about how he presents Indians, and I, but I think there's something to be said. There's a whole lot that can be said about how Cooper presents women. I'm sure there's a dissertation somewhere that's looked into this, but there, that's some of just my initial thoughts. On, on how Cooper has been presenting women in the leather stocking tales. Well, I guess that's going to do it for this episode on the prairie. Um, if you have any of your own comments, especially on this issue of how Cooper presents women, please leave them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. I'm in it, but I'll be back with part four of the prairie and with the conclusion of the leather stocking tales. Thank you so much good for good listening. Daughter, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the daughter. Good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the daughter barrel, half barrel gallon, half gallon pint pot, half a pint jill, half a jill quarter jill, never get another round bowl. Here's good luck, good luck, good luck to the barley mow. Here's good luck to the landlord, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the landlord, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the landlord daughter barrel.